Startup exits are the most sought after events in Silicon Valley, but very few people get to experience them. Welcome to the Startup Exits podcast, where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it all went down. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. Hey everybody, this is your host Andrew Vasilik and you're listening to Startup Exits, where we chat with founders that started, ran and sold a tech company to learn about how it all went down. And today I'm joined by Paul Murphy, who is a founder of a company called Dots. Welcome to the show, Paul. Hi Andrew, thanks for having me. Uh, Dots is a small gaming studio that is behind some not so very small titles uh, such as Dots and its two sequel games Two Dots and Dots and Company. Uh, Cumulatively the games have been downloaded over 100 million times and the company was acquired this year for close to 200 million dollars. This company was started out of a organization called Betaworks which is a uh, startup studio slash uh, early stage uh, investment fund slash incubator. Uh, how did you get involved with Betaworks? Well, I actually met Betaworks when I moved. I, I used to work at Microsoft in Seattle. And when I moved to New York, there was five or six people that I, I was sort of told that I, I needed to, to meet right away um, in the startup community. And John was, John Borthwick, who started Betaworks, was number one on that list. So I met him, uh, I think it landed on Friday. I met him on, on, I think it was that Saturday or Sunday for coffee. And um, yeah, and then I just, you know, I built that relationship with Betaworks for about a year before I actually started uh, working on projects there. So Betaworks, it has uh, several functions. Uh, did Dots, was it a spin out out of the startup studio division of Betaworks or some other aspect of the uh, organization? So I think the best way to Betaworks is like a living, breathing organism. So I think the the best way to to think about it is that it's solving needs that are constantly changing in our startup world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, thirteen, fourteen years ago, when when John Borthwick started the the company, um, he felt like New York City was still in its infancy. Um, it was hard to to make a great company in New York and raise capital. So he wanted to create space for founders to hang out and just meet each other, um, have, you know, really high speed internet connections, have, you know, some server capabilities before AWS was a thing. Um, and then also have some capital so that, you know, he gets companies off the ground and running. So that was what it started out as. And then over time, uh, we built up a studio function where you could, you could literally, you know, create companies. They created a venture arm where they can finance companies that weren't created within Betaworks. Um, they even have uh, a space now called Studios where uh, founders can get memberships like Soho House and they can spend time and just be in the space working around other kind of ambitious founders. Mm-hmm. And what was the dynamics like uh, with the early, very early days of Dots and Betaworks? Was this the case where you guys got like a blank check to do whatever you guys wanted? Or did you have to pitch certain ideas to get funding and support? Or um, did you already have to be at a certain stage to get any sort of uh, help from Betaworks? What, what was the kind of the very, very early incubation uh, stages of the company like? Well, when I, when I joined Betaworks, um, I joined in September uh, 2012. And I actually joined as an entrepreneur in residence. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to build something. After I left Microsoft, I joined a company in New York called Aviary, uh, which we sold to Adobe as COO. And as great as that experience was, 
I knew I wanted to build something from scratch next. So I joined with Betaworks not knowing what I wanted to build. And then a few months in, what I realized was there's all these amazing people, really talented people that might be talented in two or three areas, but we didn't kind of have all the pieces connected to build a company. Um, and so what I actually proposed to John Borthwick was, you know, would you let me assemble this team of kind of like misfits, technical misfits, mm -hmm. and let us start building things for three, four months, see what we can build. We'll promise that everything that we build, we will launch at the end of this time. And if it looks good, we'll turn it into a company. If not, we'll, we'll all go our separate ways. Um, so that, that's what I actually built. I built a thing that built other companies. Um, that was my kind of, I would say, main contribution. Um, and out of that came Dots, out of that came Giphy, out of that came a few other companies that, you know, in some cases were sold, other cases they were shut down. So at the time when, um, when Dots was starting, how many other ideas were you guys working on? There was eight in total. So Dots was wow. one, of, one of the eight. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was really an amazing cohort because we had Dots and Giphy come out of that, uh, out of that group of eight. And even if you said the rest went to zero, which they didn't, um, you know, two out of eight had a you know, multi-hundred million dollar exit. It was pretty incredible. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a remarkable result. Uh, so was it eight companies that you guys, like eight ideas that launched or just eight ideas that you started off with and only a small portion of them got to, to launch? Yeah, they all launched. Um, and, it, you know, basically every week we would just, we would just keep building. And I, I straddled each of the eight teams as kind of a product. Even though I was technical, I was more product, um, marketing, business oriented. And the other, the eight people were we're all, I would say, primarily engineers building stuff, although many of them were designers as well. Um, but we launched everything. What we actually did was we had an agreement with TechCrunch that we said, we'll let you cover all of our launches, but um, you have to commit to, to, to covering them. So uh, that you have to agree to that, no matter how bad you think it is. Uh, and we will launch uh, each project one week after the other. So I f it was sometime in May, I, I believe, we launched the first one and the second one week after, and we did it for eight weeks until we launched all, all eight projects. How many people total or was it like approximately was involved in these eight projects? Well, there were eight people plus myself that were, I would say, you know, proper co-founders. And then mm -hmm. beyond that, there was a really amazing group of resources at Betaworks uh, that were, were dipping into projects. So, but we didn't necessarily need them. Um, you know, full-time. So like we had this incredible DevOps person, Sri, who, you know, got everything up and running made sure all of our servers, you know, could scale. We had design resources, we had some mobile developers, um, but they would sort of pull them in and, and then pull them back out again when we didn't need them. So Dots, of course, is a game and neither you or your co-founder Patrick come from a background in gaming. Uh, what made you want to get into games? Uh, what was it about Dots specifically that, that looked like it was a it was a compelling enough story to try. Well, we didn't come from the gaming industry, but we grew up playing games and mm -hmm. um, loved games. And I think what, what his original concept was really, I would say, more of an art project. He was inspired by this Japanese artist, Kusama, on a trip he took with his then-girlfriend to Matsumoto, Japan. Came back and sort of showed me this project, and I was like, wow, that looks really cool. Um, and he said, I think I can turn this into something. And so he sort of kept iterating and building. And then eventually, you know, we realized, you know what, this could be, 
this could be a game. Um, we didn't know initially if it was going to be more going more the storytelling app or something else. And then our vision evolved, and what we said was actually we care about you know so many aspects of our life. We care about the design of of everything from our coffee makers to our shoes. Uh, why don't we care about the, the the games that we play on our phone where we spend considerable time? So we we sort of said you know our hypothesis was let's test this idea that people might care about how their game looks and how the the game treats them as a player. And if we try to make it look really nice and something you're not ashamed of and treat them with like the utmost respect and not try to nickel and dime them, that maybe there's an audience for that. So that was the initial test that we. Um, the first product was trying to validate. So one of the kind of the, the unique value props that you guys had or dots was the simplicity and the um, the aesthetics of the game. And b- by the way, I was a pretty religious player back in college. Uh, hmm. What was, uh, do you think that the unique slash better uh, design slash art is a significant enough value prop for startups? Is that like, could better looking products uh, simply from kind of a UI and aesthetics perspective, could that be a significant enough uh, value prop, at least in the beginning, for startups, or is that something that uh, maybe is unique to games that could not necessarily carry over to startups? I think, I think it's not um, on its own. I, I don't think it's enough. There's plenty of really well designed things that fail. Um, but when we thought about the design, it wasn't just the you know the aesthetic. It was also the both the audio um, and video visual component. So we had two amazing sound engineers that um, were with us from the very beginning. And then we ultimately brought them on as employees and they're still employed. Um, and they, we, we probably overspent on this really elaborate sound studio because we felt sound was so crucial to the game experience. But we also obsessed about speed. We wanted you to be able to launch the game and play within a few seconds. Um, so that meant no pop-ups, no ads, just get in and play. Um, it also meant that the app had to be kind of really lightweight. Um, we also felt like it was the kind of game that had to be, you know, where you could create this over the shoulder envy. So someone's in line or on an airplane, you see them playing this thing and you say, Oh, what's that? It's this thing dots. You search dots and it's really quick and easy to install from the app store. So at the time in you know, 2013, when we launched it, um, how, how, you know, how big the, the binary was from the app store mattered uh, because it could mean you can install it in 20, 30 seconds, or maybe it takes a couple minutes. We want it to be in the seconds. So all of those kind of combined made a, a design experience that we felt was really different to everything else that was out there. So I think for startups that I actually think there's companies entirely built on that. Now I think Superhuman's a great example of that mm-hmm. um, where they said, we're going to make it really good, really minimal, really fast. Um, and they've achieved that, and they've got a pretty big audience of customers use it. You mentioned initially that there is, uh, when you guys were starting off, so you, there, was, there was a bunch of shared resources that you had from Betaworks. Uh, I'm curious, what, what was the, the go-to-market strategy like? You mentioned TechCrunch was a part of that. Uh, anything else that you guys used to launch, these game, launch the games and other projects that you had going on? Well, it was, I'd love to take credit for that, but it was mostly accidental. We, we launched on TechCrunch, Jordan Cooper, who wrote um, uh, an amazing article. Uh, it was, I think her, her headline was like, this is the most beautiful game I've ever played or something like that or ever seen. And it was just, that article was, was instrumental because it just sort of spread really fast. Um, but then we had people like Michael Arrington, 
who saw the game the day before we launched backstage at an event um, and tweeted about it the day that we launched. Uh, that sort of took off. That was an accidental benefit. And then the other thing is we ultimately relied quite heavily on paid marketing, but initially I just ran a campaign on Facebook to see what our CPIs would be um, on the app store. And interestingly, I, I entered the times and dates wrong. So I meant to spend, it was something like $2,000 over the course of a week to get that data. And I ended up spending it within an hour or two because um, I got the time zones wrong. And it was a really sort of positive mistake because <laughs> I realized our CPIs at some level of scale were extremely low, like single digit cents. <laughs> um, so we said, okay, what happens if we put 10K behind us? And then all of a sudden, we just saw this hockey stick effect where we'd spend a dollar to get a certain number of users and we'd get 10, 20, $30 worth of users for free uh, because of the kind of word of mouth virality in the game. Um, so that, those are you know, some of the things that are, it turns out are really difficult to recreate, um, but were helpful for us when we launched it the first time. So the app budget that you guys had, uh, like the, 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 ac- the accident, <laughs> the happy accident, <laughs> um, was that, so, so you, you spent a huge amount of money in a very short amount of time uh, accidentally. Is that, is that, did that lead to like any sort of um, kind of snowball effect where you guys got featured maybe on, on, on Apple or some other uh, app store and that eventually kind of led to this effect where uh, spending 10K within an hour is, uh, could be a much better strategy than spending 10K within a week's time. Is that, is that something you think that's repeatable or, or do you think that's something that, that just really the stars aligned and it was a, um, it just happened that way for, for dots. I think there's definitely some timing elements to this. I mean, you, you look at something like Candy Crush or even Angry Birds, and those are definitely not, you know, they're not the best games out there. They're good games. Uh, dots is a good game. I think a great game, but we also launched those games at a time and there wasn't much else out there. And so those, you know, a good game in 2013 really, really stood out. Whereas today, if you build a good game, it's going to be much more difficult to get that kind of word of mouth uh, and virality. So I think, but the, the lesson there is a few lessons, um, you know, the, the, and maybe before I talk about this, I'll talk about Giphy as a counterexample. So we launched Giphy around the same time and, you know, Mashable, I think, I think it was Mashable wrote an article that something like you can find those gifts that you love to share now on Giphy. And so um, we didn't launch it necessarily. They just sort of found it when we were still building it. And um, and that just took off and it went, you know, our servers came crashing down. That guy's free that I mentioned earlier, he figured out how to get them all back up and running again in a few hours. Um, and then it's, it was sort of scale, scale, scale from there uh, for years. It just never slowed down to the point where they were, you know, serving more content than, you know, major, major websites like Snapchat. Um, so that, I think if I try to reverse engineer both Dots and Giphy, the commonality is that they were, you know, you couldn't, maybe you don't, it's, it's overstatement to say dots was solving a problem, but it was solving a, 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 it was creating a solution for a gap in the market. It was a genuine solution for a gap that we saw in the market and Giphy did the same thing. And I think if founders are, are doing that, if they're really building something for a problem or a space that does not exist, but should exist, I think you will find uh, your audience. It's much more difficult to go enter a market and launch a product when you're building something 
which is a bit better or even quite a bit better than something else that's already solving that problem in the market. In the case of Dots and Giphy, there was nothing else solving those problems. So as a small side note, Giphy, uh, for those that are aware, has also been acquired. Uh, it's a company that's been spun out uh, alongside, like you mentioned, Dots uh, out of Betaworks, which you had a pretty large contribution uh, into, into the company. And it has been acquired this year by Facebook for uh, almost half a billion dollars. I think 400 million was the reported price. So two huge acquisitions for you this year. Um, when you mentioned you relied pretty, pretty heavily on paid advertisements. And uh, at that time, Facebook ads was relatively new. What are your thoughts about trying out new advertising platforms? Like right now, TikTok is a good example. It's relatively new. I think they uh, somewhat recently launched their advertising uh, tools. So what are your thoughts about uh, including these experimental uh, platforms into marketing strategies of startups? I mean, definitely try. Uh, the, the, the issue now, which didn't exist back in 2013, is that there are thousands, literally thousands of companies who have dozens of people uh, looking for new ways to arbitrage these ad platforms every day. Um, you know, trying to eke out five, ten percent yield on a certain ad budget, um, and so they'll go to all these platforms. They'll run massive spend campaigns. There's agencies that will run that for you. So, unfortunately, the well is a bit dry uh, for, I think, even on a new platform like TikTok or Snapchat. I mean, we, we tried them all, and um, you know, early days of Facebook and even early days of Twitter, uh, there was so little um, demand from advertisers and there was so much supply of eyeballs that it was just insanely cheap um, and hadn't reached nowhere near equilibrium. Today, you know, I think it takes these platforms hours, um, if not less, to reach kind of equilibrium and, and then they're all run by auctions and then prices kind of, you know, net out at a certain point. So it's, it's more difficult, but yeah, always experiment. I think today as an investor, what I look for are um, in the consumer space or things that really don't rely entirely on paid acquisition. It's nice to know that you can do it, but as a, as a sort of requirement to build out your company, it's, it's a bit more difficult. So you and Patrick and the team has executed incredibly well, anything from the go-to-market to the, the later marketing strategies that you guys had, a PR, the product itself uh, was great. And uh, that is evident in the fact that Dots and, and the, the, the two other games that you guys have released have been smash hits in the US. Uh, you were uh, pushing pretty heavily to expand into China. What was the reason uh, that you wanted to, to get into the Chinese market? Why did you find China attractive for games? Well, you know, again, back then, and China is like now probably the largest market for many sectors today. <laughs> but back then, gaming was the anomaly. In, in gaming, you know, China was nowhere near a developing or emerging market. It was the market. It was the biggest market, um, bigger than the US. And the audience was much more sophisticated and, uh, and much more kind of used to playing advanced mobile games on their phone. So... For me, if I, my ambition, even though I was happy with the outcome, my ambition was to build a much bigger company than we became. Um, that ambition couldn't be realized unless we figured out a way to enter China. And so I, I just said, look, it's going to be painful. It's going to be expensive, but we got to try. Um, it, it didn't pan out necessarily uh, the way I wanted to, but I was, I was glad we gave it an effort. 
you mentioned that it didn't pan out you guys got pretty close um what was the kind of the main roadblocks what were the the biggest difficulties you have found as a u.s company trying to enter china i think the biggest there was almost like a psychological um gap that um i don't know what i'd call it maybe it was like it was sort of unfounded confidence that you know us as westerners assume that we could take our product and as long as people you know in in china knew about it then they would like it too um and so we just had to figure out the right way to do that it turns out at the time it was dominated by android android was you know there's no google play so you can't roll out through google play you had to go to these local app stores like uh 360 and others um so yeah i think i, I what i what i now reflect on and i wish i had done was really spent more time um, just trying to understand the market and less time trying to enter the market. And I think if I, I had done that, what I would have realized is it's a fundamentally different consumer that plays mobile games in China. Mm-hmm. They're nowhere near the same as the Western market. Um, and that probably would have led us to, instead of trying to launch our Western title in China, it probably would have led us to invest or build a studio in China to make games for China. And do you think that this um, this sort of experience, the difficulty of going from one market to another, um, do you think a Chinese company, for example, trying to enter the U.S. market or an Italian company trying to enter the U.S. market, do you think it's a similar uh, kind of difficult path that these companies have to go through? Or is there something about China besides the fact that it's such a big market that, uh, that makes it especially difficult? It, it is especially difficult, I think. And it's, it's, um, it was confusing for us because in places like Korea and Japan, we hit number one in the app store. And so we're thinking, why is China different? And what we said was China is only different because it's a more regulated environment. And so you can't kind of go through the traditional, we couldn't use Facebook and Twitter to buy ads because Facebook didn't exist in China. We couldn't use Google Play to launch our Android product where most of the market was because Google Play didn't exist. So I just assume that if I saw, if I found the Chinese equivalent of Facebook, if I found the Chinese equivalent of Google Play, um, then we would achieve the same success that we achieved in Japan and Korea, um, which was which was obviously not the case. Mm-hmm. And regardless, I mean, of the fact that you guys were not able to enter China successfully, but the game, the company was was insanely successful uh, in the U.S. market alone, or mostly within within the U.S. market outside of um, excluding China. Uh, the company was acquired, mm-hmm. as I mentioned initially, in twenty. Uh, 20, so just a couple of months ago, by close to 200 million by Take Two. Uh, talk to me a little bit about how this acquisition went down. How long did you guys know, know Take Two? What, what was the process like? Yeah, so we knew Take Two for years. Uh, they actually looked at investing in our company um, maybe five years ago uh, when we did our, our Series A. Um, that was the round that Tencent, uh, Tencent Greycroft, and Norstone invested in, uh, in us. Um, so we had built the relationship back then. Um, I actually used to work with uh, their head of corp dev um, at Microsoft. So we knew each other. The Betaworks founder knew Strauss Zelnick at Take-Two Media. So there was a lot of common connections. Um, and it was built, you know, in an ideal world, every acquisition would be like this, where you build that relationship over a long period of time. And then it's just a matter of kind of things aligning and then, and then you make it happen. And after Dots, uh, you uh, went into the, the world of venture capital. Uh, you are now an investor at a firm called Northzone. 
uh, what made you want to go? So you, 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 first of all, I mean, you have an incredibly uh, diverse career. So anything from working at Microsoft, the huge companies uh, going through acquisitions as as an employee, as a founder, building out uh, almost like a, uh, the inception of the startup studio concept at Betaworks, uh, and now you are a an investor. So what made you want to get into uh, venture capital and, and investing? Well, when I, the, there's a sort of, it might sort of appear diverse, but there's a pretty common thread. I, I had been building stuff. I'd always loved building stuff. And when I was at university, I built a company with my my closest friend at the time. Uh, in the, It was a content management system. And we scaled the company up, uh, became pretty big, at least for college students. Um, and then ultimately, it failed. It came crashing down, had to lay off our whole team and sell it for parts. And I was deeply frustrated by that process. And so what I what I wanted to do was go to a company that was commercially successful, a tech company that's commercially successful, learn from them, and then go back and do it again. And so I, at the time, Microsoft was that company. I went and I learned. I was only supposed to do it for a couple of years. I ended up actually finding it quite fun and I traveled with them. So I stayed longer. But um, then I came back out and I was just trying to put everything I learned into practice. And I spent you know, almost eight, nine years doing that. Um, now, candidly, I just, when I left Dots, I was exhausted. I just didn't have the energy um, mm-hmm. and the mental capacity to kind of think about doing it again. I was also moving my family from New York to London, just a lot of things. Um, so I, I thought, you know what, I'll, I'll spend a year, I'll hang out at a, fr- at a fund, I'll talk to, I talked to a few different funds, um, and I'll see if I want to do this investing thing long-term or if I want to start another company. And what I found now that it, after I spent a year at Northstone um, was that I, I really enjoy being able to sit down with founders, see the energy and the, the, the sort of the light that, that appears in their eyes on their ideas and their, the problems they want to solve. And then just be kind of a, a confidant for them, just someone that they can relay their frustrations to and be able to sort of share lessons and mistakes that I've made um, so that they don't have to make them again. And that role, I, I find to be really um, satisfying. And I, I think so far, it seems like I'm, I'm actually helpful. So I, I'm, I'm enjoying that too. Um, so anyway, that's kind of how I ended up here. I was, you know, I was kind of open-minded as to whether I'd started another company or, or not, but I, I really enjoy this investing thing. You've got a pretty unique, I think, I think a lot of unique, not just one, but multiple unique things about uh, dots and um, anything from China to the go-to-market. Uh, how has your experience as a founder uh, at Giphy and uh, dots? Uh, how has that influenced you as an investor? Um, I, I think it's primarily around that founder empathy. I I know what it's like to not be able to sleep at night because you're you sort of. You go to bed exhausted, you wake up at 2 a.m. and your mind starts racing. And before you know it, it's five and you realize you can't fall back asleep. And that would happen to me, depending on what was going on, anywhere from at least once a week, if not you know, three to four times a week. And I was a pretty good sleeper before that. Um, so I, I know that, you know, especially as the founder and CEO, you're, you don't ever have start and end points to your day and your week. And so I accept and I, I love the fact that founders will call me at you know eleven o'clock on Saturday night and talk about a problem that they're facing, an employee issue, a, a, a business contract, an investor issue, an acquisition offer, um, and just really 
being there to listen. And then if I can, if I have advice to share, I'll give it to them, but I usually just listen and ask questions and we kind of figure it out together. Um, so that's the bit that I find that's where I feel like I can add value. There are other investors that come from, you know, Goldman Sachs or the world of private equity and, and they can help you structure, you know, some really clever debt financing. Like that's not my thing. Um, but I, I feel like I can be a relatable person to a founder, um, hopefully help, help them. And what sort of companies do you, do you look at? Like what, what sort of stages, uh, industries, what, what sort of country companies uh, are you interested in as an investor? Well, one of the reasons I joined North Zone um, is it's one of the oldest funds in Europe. So it's been around for 25, 26 years, something like that. Um, it's a large fund um, and it's multi-stage. So we can invest at seed, pre-seed, um, all the way up to series B or later. We tend to do mostly series A um, and we're generalists. So we can invest in any sector or theme. Um, so I love that because to me, what I get excited about are amazing founders always and great products. And if I find that combination in a healthcare company, like I did with 30 Madison, I invested in series A, or if I find it with a game studio, like I did with Clang uh, and Bunch or mobility company with tier mobility uh, or hop in for live events. Like there's not a lot of sector commonality across those companies, but in every case, they're really amazing individuals that are that have started and are running those companies and they're they've built really phenomenal products so that's what i tend to like which makes it difficult because i don't you know i don't focus necessarily but um but yeah i kind of go across the board might be a weird question uh but now that you're as an now that you're an investor if you had met yourself now uh if you today as an investor meaning have met would have met yourself as a founder of dots or as a founder of giphy as one of the early people at giphy uh in the very early stages of the company do you think you would have invested um yep thought about that a lot actually <laughs> i wish i knew more i wish i knew what i know now back then uh Giphy is a no-brainer. I mean, Giphy at the beginnings, it's like, in both cases, yes. And I'm not just saying that because they're my companies. I think the better, not to say that wasn't a, bad, a good question, but the better question potentially are the other six companies. And Dots mm -hmm. and Giphy had KPIs out of the gate that you know any founder would die for. So yes, 100%, I would write that check right away. Um, for the other six companies, those are more difficult. They had great founders and they built really good products, but they hadn't found any product market fit. Um, and that's, that is, and that's, that tends to be where we as early stage investors usually land. It's rare that we get the gift of being able to invest after there's some level of traction or clear product market fit. But in the case where there's not product market fit, um, you know, I think I probably would have invested in most of the other projects because they had great founders and, and, and great products. Um, but um, yeah, it's a good, it's a good question, actually. So when, when, in the case of the other six companies, uh, now that you're an yeah. investor, if you meet, uh, people that are in similar situations where you see, these are great founders. These are people that you would want to, uh, stay close to. And you, uh, I think in some cases, you know, it's, it's pretty obvious that these people are going to go on to do great things, but their product in that particular company, which they're working on now may not be that great. Uh, what do you do in that situation as an investor? Do you try to just stay in touch and, uh, wait for them to to, to pivot or start, start something new? Or do you tell them kind of point blank that, look, you know, I like you, but I don't really like your product or your company? Yeah, I try to do the latter. I try to be really honest. At the end of every um, 
investor, every startup pitch, I try to give feedback and just tell, be, tell them like, look, this is, I wouldn't have taken this call if I didn't think you were an interesting person, if I didn't think the space that you're building around is interesting. So there's 3,000 companies that we as a firm look at. I probably take 50 founder meetings a year. So it's, it's a pretty big top of funnel, small, that we actually engage with. So, so hopefully they feel like I, you know, I certainly wasn't wasting their time. I was genuinely interested, but I will give them feedback that, look, I don't know why what you're building looks great, but the data tells a very different story. Um, so you should really reflect on that. Or um, like I had a, a meeting earlier this week where great founder, great product. Um, but I was just like, I don't, I don't really see how you're going to get any commercial traction because it's good, but it's not, that, it's not that much better than what else is out there. Um, so I, I, I try to give that feedback. You know, to be honest with you, a lot of founders do not like it. Um, I think mm-hmm. I've probably turned some off, but uh, maybe at some point in the future, they'll reflect and say they appreciate the fact that I didn't waste their time. Um, but it's definitely, it's received, it's got sort of mixed reception. Yeah, I think the issue is that a lot of founders they um, they get too emotionally attached to their idea, so yeah. any sort of negative feedback they perceive it uh, personally. Uh, but I think it's fantastic that you give uh, feedback, even if you say no uh, to founders, because a lot of VCs they you know they leave founders hanging uh, without any sort of clear answer. Uh, for founders that are uh, similar to uh, to you and Patrick, and to maybe the other six companies that uh, were part of the uh, BetaWorks cohort, uh, where can they find you? Where can they get a hold of you? Yeah, I mean, I, I am pretty active and engaged on Twitter. So it's just uh, Paul BZ or BZ, uh, depending on which country, on Twitter. Um, or you can reach me, Paul at Northstone.com. Uh, either case is, is great. Uh, but yeah, would like to be, we have a very open door and cold, cold emails are, are welcome. Uh, cold pitches are welcome. Awesome. Thanks a lot for being on the show, Paul. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe and share it with your friends. Also tag a founder you'd like to see on the show. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. To learn more, visit startupsoft.org.